Turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, we're going to continue on with our series entitled Truth. Today, in this generation, what's commonly called millennials, which is like 18, I think, to 36 in that general neighborhood, people who fall in that age group, they have a different perspective on how they weigh truth. And for most of them, they kind of, it's like a smorgasbord. When, when, when they're studying different religions, they kind of grasp different truths from these religions or what's proposed as truth, and they pull them all together like a smorgasbord, and they say, well, this is what I believe. And we've come to a couple of conclusions so far. Um, and, and I want to just share with you this past Wednesday, and, and if you can't make it to Wednesday, well, if you can make it to Wednesdays, let me really encourage you to do that because Wednesdays generally takes a portion of the Sunday's message and just goes deeper with that. You're going to see that especially this Wednesday. But we've looked at truth and we've established there were like nine different truths about truth. And I'm just going to review with you just three. I'm not going to share all nine of them with you. But number one, truth is the fact regardless of what you believe about it. Your belief in it does not change it one iota. Number two, that truth cannot contradict itself. This is a basic law of logic. Truth cannot contradict itself. And lastly, truth must be absolute and exclusive by its nature. It can't be X and the opposite of X. Okay? This is just logical. It must be absolute, but it must also be exclusive by the nature of truth. Now, these are some tenets that I'm just kind of tossing out to you that our generation is kind of pushing down, and you're going to see why over the next several weeks. Because when we look at the truth, the truth says something that really challenges us. And, and we are afraid to come to a conclusion that says the Bible, the Word of God, has been right all along. And if it's right, church, it has a lot to say about you and I. And our relationship, or broken relationship perhaps with God, that only Christ can mend. So what we're going to do then is we're going to be looking at these things, but the question then we're going to have to ask is how do we discover truth? How do we do this? And I'm going to say suggest we start at the beginning and we build this argument. And Jesus, has he expressed he had no problem sharing evidences or proofs. And that's what he said, Acts chapter 1, Jesus spent 40 days demonstrating proofs for his resurrection. So let's not shy away from proofs or evidences, but let's realize that our, my relationship with Jesus Christ doesn't just rest on these logical or philosophical truths or, or, or evidences. They are rooted in the word of God. This is the truth that we must come to. There's a lot of different books out there that claim to be truth, and I'm going to suggest to you this one right here, it, it contains the truth. But our generation does not like that idea. How do we deal with it? So today, for example, we're going to go through Romans 1, and we're going to look at this first question, is there a God? Is there a God? And if there is, what is he like? And can we deduce what God is like by his creation? I'm going to suggest that we can. Number two, next question is, if there is, an, is there any written, where, excuse me, is there any written record that we can trust that reveals truth to us? Number three, are the Gospels historically reliable? Because if they're historically reliable at all points outside of their recorded miracles, what keeps us from believing the reliability of those miracles? You see, but presently, people are being aware. And for the last almost, about I would say about 90 years, because <clears throat> about 90 years ago is when so much proof uh, archaeologically was discovered that lends believability to the historical accuracy of the Gospels and Acts itself. And so if they're historically accurate, then what about the miracle claims? Why are we compelled to push them aside? And it's because of our allegiance to science that weighs only material things. 
That's what science, that's the only thing science can do. It cannot prove God. It cannot measure God. It cannot weigh God. And so consequently, God is off the charts. And that truth that he reveals is off the charts, like here. And therefore, miracles are as well. Because you can't weigh it. It, it goes against or, or above supersedes. That's why we call them supernatural. It goes above nature. And so we throw miracles out just because of our allegiance to science. And it's really not allegiance to science. It's really allegiance to what scientists say about science. And I'm going to challenge us that there is more to this universe than just, what do they say? Time, space, and matter. Those are the three things that comprise our universe and our experience. But there is a reality that goes beyond that. So today, we are going to need to ask this hard question, what about, what about that evidence concerning the existence of God? So this is not a sermon series that's rooted in philosophy, that's rooted in apologetic, or, or that's, that is about apologetics, but we're going to need to talk about this. We're going to need to talk about it because we've got to weigh the truth. And so my heart is that what I share with you over the next several weeks and what we've been going over the last few is that you're going to take some notes, okay? That, that's a great idea, by the way. If you're not used to taking notes, pull out a piece of paper and just write down notes. Just jot them down because I want to equip you to be able to share with your friends who are caught up in this idea of, Truth is relative. Truth is not applicable. You have personal truth and I have my personal truth. Consequently, what is truth? We need to discover that and how we can observe it and, and is there such a thing? And I'm claiming that there is, but let's dig into these things. So I want you to be able to share these truths with your friends. Not in an arrogant way, of course not, but in a loving, gracious way. And number two, I want you to invite your friends. And, and, and perhaps they're going to view it online through streaming, but however they do, that they would listen to these claims that we're going to go through and think through what is truth. So crucial. Because truth isn't just something that we intellectually grasp, church. Truth is something that transforms you. It has application. It has implications of how we live in this day. We cannot avoid that. I remember that... Several years ago, I, I, I had mentioned and I shared this story with you a few weeks ago, I encountered somebody at SSC. So I was starting a, a ministry. It was an apologetics type of ministry. So I felt that it would be really, you know, ground level for unbelievers to come and listen. You know, why do we believe in these? Why do we believe that Jesus is who he said is? Why do we believe that the Bible's credible and reliable and so on? And so in, in doing this, I, I encountered a young man and he was interested because I was, I was sharing uh, what I wanted to do with a young lady there at the information table at the at the college. And so she had a bunch of questions, and she was kind of directing me. And this guy came in, and he said, so you be, you really believe that, that Jesus is the Son of God? And, and you really believe that the Bible is reliable? And I said, I absolutely do. So he was interested, gave him a book, sat down with him about a month later after he had read it, and I went through them in that lunchtime with them. I went through some of these things that I'm going to share with you, just a few things that I'm going to share with you over the next couple of weeks. At the very end, he realized, he came to this conclusion. I hear exactly what you're saying. And I, I acknowledge everything that you're saying. And it's true. And so I said, right now, you can make a decision to follow Jesus. And he can change your life forever forever and he paused and he said no and i asked him why aren't you willing to make that choice and there was a long pause and then he said this because of this in my life and this sin in my life and then if i become a, i'm gonna have to give up this and i said you know what Jesus talked about that. He said, you're going to have to count the cost of being a disciple. So I want to commend you that right now, you're not just saying yes, but you're counting the cost. You're counting the cost because you are surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. But here's what I hear you saying. You don't want to follow Jesus today 
because you love your sin too much. And he looked at me, and he kind of shook his head, and he said, that's right. I want to share some of these things with you, church, because, because the truth of God's word will challenge and change this generation. It is the only hope that we have. So let's do that. Let's look at Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 18 through 23 to start. Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 18. This is how it begins. The wrath of God. Probably the least favorite topic of this generation. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Man, we're going to have to come back to that. Against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. Wow. The truth about God is plain to them. How can this be? Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, two things, make note of this, underline them, his eternal power and his divine nature, that is his attributes. What is God like? That's his his divine nature. Had been clearly seen being understood from what he has made. So that men are without excuse. May I add so that men everywhere, not just in America, not just in so-called Christian nations, men everywhere are without excuse. Regardless of where you are, Paul is saying to the Romans that creation declares to us his God's eternal power and his divine nature, what he is like. I want to go through those. I want you to write them down so you can share with others. But as we can observe this, we are there, we therefore will stand before God without any excuse. Well, I just wasn't told that there was a God. Nope. Then he goes on and he says this. For although they knew God, whom? All men, everywhere. May I say even including atheists or agnostics. They can look around and they can know there is a God. They have neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. You see, according to verse 18, there is a tendency to reject or discard truth, kind of sweep it under the carpet. Because if we can do that, if we can sweep truth under the carpet, what it has to say about Mike Curtis And we're going to discover this just looking at creation, but Scripture verifies that Mike Curtis is a sinner. Or at least he was before he met Christ. Not that I don't sin anymore, but I'm not characterized as a sinner anymore. I'm characterized, and all who believe in Jesus are characterized as a saint. And a saint is not someone who has done miracles and voted in by some organization. He's a saint, but rather a saint is someone who believes in Jesus and has been made righteous by the life and the righteousness of Christ. Because saint means holy one. All who believe in Jesus are holy ones, and we are all saints who believe in Jesus. So Mike Curtis used to be a sinner, that is, someone characterized by sin, but now I am someone who's characterized by righteousness, then on occasion I sin. And, and that occasion is more than I would personally like, to be honest with you. But the truth is I've been rescued. And Scripture then makes it clear that in view of that, and the Bible says I'm a sinner, I need to be rescued. And this generation does not like that concept. So how can we help them? And, and if you're here and you have tossed aside the claims of Christ and the truth revealed in God's word, I want to encourage you, listen in. Why would someone, and especially as smart as Paul, why would someone even believe that there's a God and believe that Jesus is actually his son who died on the cross and rose? Why would we do this? Okay. 
You might remember from last week, I guess it was, King Manasseh. King Manasseh was a wicked king. It was two generations later, his grandson, that when they were fixing up the temple, they, re- they discovered the law of the covenant. They discovered the law of Moses. Manasseh, who reigned 55 years and was the most wicked king, even more wicked than King Ahab, he had disposed of the word of God. And that is what every generation must do in order to have people believe a lie. Think about communism. What do they do with any religion, especially Christianity? They kill them, and they take the Bibles, and they burn them. Get rid of the truth, because if I do that, now they can believe the lie. So, we need to discover the truth. We can't get rid of the truth to believe the lie. So, I want you to look at verses 19 and 20. They clearly tell us that we can truly, even though we suppress the, it says right there, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, but they cannot suppress the truth that creation is making plain to them. And it will, and, and that cre, and creation speaks that truth to all nations, regardless of religion, all nations. I want us to look at this. What can be known about God is plain to them, it says, through creation. How is this true? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put this up on the board here. And if some of you are familiar with these arguments, and again, we're not going to base the entire message or messages in the future on reasoning like this. But when you speak to an atheist, they're going to completely reject the Bible. So I'm going to suggest to you, start with where you have common ground. So that's what we're going to do. Ground level. We're going to start with what we have in common with them. What we can observe. What we can know. Okay? Because truth, truths are facts. They're not opinions. All right, so let's discover some of these facts. Cosmological argument. And it basically says this. If there is a created universe, there is a creator. If if we can establish and prove that this universe was created, then that means that there is a creator. So how can we do this? How can you do this with your friend? Number one, write this down. This is what's called a syllogism. If this and this, then conclusion this. That's called a syllogism in logic. So I'm going to just share one of those with you concerning the cosmological argument. Here it is. You have your pens out? Everything that had a beginning had a cause. This is the common law of causality. There's, everybody agree, agrees with this. Though there are some scientists who are rejecting this, but it's the, ground, the groundwork for science itself. If there is an effect then there must be a cause. So we call that the law of cause and effect. The second thing is that the universe had a beginning. So let's just establish these two things. Number one, the first law of thermodynamics. It states that matter cannot be created or destroyed. Matter cannot be created or destroyed, okay? That if that's the case, then we must conclude that something can never come from nothing. Do you understand that? Something. Cole, you're here. You're a something. You're a somebody. But you're more than that. You know that. He didn't come from nothing. He didn't just suddenly appear. Cole has a history and we've got to actually track, track, trace it back, and we all do, and then all the way back to you know next generation and next generation, and there was a beginning. How did that beginning, if matter can't be created or destroyed, where did that something come from? Therefore, it had to come from somewhere, and if it came from somewhere, 
If it came from somewhere, then what caused it? Presently today, there's a very popular theory, and that's all it is right now. It's a theory. It's called the Big Bang Theory. And they've looked at three things. I'm not going to get into all of them except to say that they see the universe expanding. Okay? And that's the basic premise. There's other things. But in the universe expanding, what they do is they extrapolate it backwards. If it's expanding this way, then let's go back in time. And that means everything's coming closer and closer and closer together until it forms. Some people say it's like the size of a period. Some people say that it's the size of a golf ball or an egg. But here's the truth. We can't even establish that because according to the Bible, God created the earth and the universe. And in half a dozen or more places, it says, then God stretched out the heavens. And I would suggest that is why the universe is expanding. Okay? But since secular scientists today will not accept the Bible, then they say it doesn't come back to God creating the earth and the universe. It comes back to this point. Regardless, it had a beginning. It didn't just suddenly happen. It didn't just suddenly appear. And so consequently we would have to conclude that someone created something. So, <laughs> the Big Bang tells us that there was a beginning to this universe. Now, atheists today try to explain it. They, they try to get out of this ultimate conclusion that the universe had a beginning and that that beginning had a cause outside of the material universe. And who would that be other than God? Okay? How do they avoid that? Here's what they say. Here's what your friend might say. Well, what's popular in science today is that the universe is expanding and eventually it's going to reach its its limit as if it's on a rubber band and then it's going to contract again, come back to a point, and then it's going to expand again. And then it's going to contract and come back to another point and back and forth and back and forth it's going to go. You might call this the big bang, 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 bang theory. The truth is, how is that possible? Because in the second law of thermodynamics, it says that all things tends towards being run down. It's called entropy. They, it loses energy. Let me, let me just demonstrate that to you real quickly here. This is a tennis ball. It's an old one, so it's not going to bounce very much. But I'm going to drop it, and I want to see, do you think it's going to bounce back up to my hand? Do you think it's going to bounce higher than my hand? How many of you think it's going to bounce higher than my hand? Raise your hand. Really? Why not? How many of you think it's going to bounce to the same level that I'm going to drop it? Raise your hand. You all must know what I know, and that is that when this ball bounces and connects with the floor, it loses energy. The ball loses energy. The energy actually is transformed, and it goes elsewhere. But it will lose this energy, and it will keep bouncing, and with every bounce, it will get smaller and smaller. Let's test that. And it eventually stopped. Do you see that? And it stopped rolling. It's not moving anymore. Now, I, I'm go- I will remove the ball because I'm afraid I'm going to step on it. So I'm going to remove the ball. But it stopped. Why hasn't that happened to you? If the universe is eternal, that means it's infinite. There's no, it's not bound by, um, you can just go all the way back to infinity and there's just no beginning to it. If it's always been, then that means it has an infinite number of expansions and contractions. Back and forth. Back and forth. But that can't be, because with every contraction, you're going to lose energy, and, the con- and it will expand less and less and less and eventually less. Why hasn't it done that? Here's why. Because the universe is not eternal. It had a beginning. And everything that has a beginning, it says, that syllogism says, everything that had a beginning has a cause. What caused the universe. It can't be material because everything that's material is part of the universe. Therefore, there must be a God. A creator that created you. That's just 
we're going to go further. The second thing is the teleological argument. If the universe has a design, it has a designer. If you were to look at the Grand Canyon and a picture of the Grand Canyon, Grand Canyon is beautiful. When we lived in Phoenix, Arizona for three years, we visited the Grand Canyon four times. And those four times happened every single time we had a visitor coming to our house. They always wanted to see the Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon was about four hours north. We took them up there. Beautiful. One time we trekked down, not to the very bottom, but pretty far, and we regretted it because we barely made it back up. It is tiring walking uphill for so, for so long. But the Grand Canyon is beautiful. Was the Grand Canyon, does the Grand Canyon have a particular design? We would have to say, not really. It doesn't have a design but it is beautiful, okay? Now let's look at, at uh, Mount Rushmore with the four president's faces. Did that just happen? No. Why do, why can, how can you tell it doesn't? Because it has design. We can intuitively tell when something has design and when something does not. And they've actually whittled it down to some, you know, describing this is how we can tell the difference. It's like five different things. And if it possesses all those five, then it's, it has design. There is so much in this world that man has not made that falls in that category of design. Back in the 1800s, a man, a scientist, by the name of Sir Walter Paley, came up with this argument that if something has a design, it has a designer. And he used the example or illustration of a watch. He said, I was... You could be walking along the, the beach. And if you found this watch on a beach, would you pick it up and say, wow, look what the ocean made. Or look what the sand made. Or look what all of these laws of physics working together made. You wouldn't. And why would you not say that? Because it clearly has design. So therefore, it didn't just happen by chance, but it has a watchmaker, okay? Every watch has a watchmaker. It didn't just happen in the depths of the ocean and get washed ashore. Every watch has a watchmaker. Everything that has design has a designer. This was his argument. Now, I'm just going to lift out one of these ideas of design, okay? And it has to do with the, what allows Earth to even have life on it. The water cycle. Without the water cycle, life could not be on planet Earth. The distance that our sun is from planet Earth, the, the Earth, excuse me, the sun's size, and therefore the amount of heat that it gives off is just right for Earth. It doesn't get too cold in the wintertime. Okay, maybe in the far north or in the Antarctic. But people generally are smart enough not to live there. How about the levels of oxygen and carbon dioxide in our atmosphere? There's generally 20% or a little bit more. Anything below 20%, life can't exist. How is it that Earth has 20% or more oxygen, 20 to 25%? The levels of CO2, same thing. Wow. Is it a coincidence? How about our need for the moon and the exact distance that the moon is? If the moon were too close, the, the tides would be huge and would flood the continents. It's just the right distance, even though, by the way, they have measured it, and it's getting a little bit closer each year to the Earth. How is it? that we have a moon that's just right for our tides. Because see, without the tides, the, the oceans would be stagnant and it would die. And if the oceans die, guess what, guys? We die too. That's just the way it is. The moon. How about gravity? Gravity is perfect. It's actually the weakest force in the universe. But without gravity, guess where you'd be? Yeah, woo. You'd be way out there. You'd be, you'd be further out than left field. You'd be way out there. Gravity could have been greater or less on planet Earth, but only within a certain narrow margin. 
if Earth were twice its size, you would be crushed. You would not be able to live on planet Earth. If it were too small, you'd float away. But so would the atmosphere and the oxygen, and so you would die. There's actually 122 of these fine-tuned constants in our universe. 122. They're like dials. And these dials, you know, there's, there's, have you ever seen a dial and there's a mark on it and you line it up with one of those other markers and that can tell, you know, you, maybe, maybe it's, it's, you're trying to get to a certain frequency or something like this and you're turning that dial just right to get Z88.3 or something like this. And so, consequently, there's 122 of these and they're all right on the mark. Every single one of them. Every one of them. And so someone did the math. Not just someone, but many, many people. They did the math. And generally, for all 122, by chance, to be pointed at the just right so that there could even be life on planet Earth, listen to this figure. One in 10 to the 100... Do I have it? No, I don't. Anyway, I'll just remember this. One in 10 to the 138. That means one with 138 zeros after it. Let me just tell you how big that number is. They have, as far as they can tell, there is about 10 to the 22nd planets in our universe. That there's billions of galaxies and each galaxy has billions of planets. So, they, they, they calculate, it's about, our universe contains about 10 to the 22nd planets. 10 to the 22nd Earths, if you will, planets, like, you know, planets. They then say, it, let me just tell you how big 10 to the 22nd is. 10 to the 23rd means that there are 10 of those, so 10 universes. One universe has 10 to the 22nd planets, 10 universes has 10 to the 23rd. But we're talking 1 in 10 to the 138. Probability scientists say, once you get to 10 to the 50th, the chance is removed. If we're going to remove chance to this issue of design and the fine-tuning in this universe, what are we left with? It didn't happen by chance. Someone took every single dial and dialed it in just right so that life could exist on planet Earth. Someone did this. Who did this? I'm going to suggest that that is God. The very same conclusion we came to in the cosmological argument. Well, the, the response to this from atheists is that there are many universes. We call this the multiverse. The multiverse, all you're doing to for the multiverse is you're taking the problem of one universe and you're multiplying it by how many multiverses there are. As hard as it is for a one universe to come about, now there's actually, they would say, an infinite number of universes. And if there's an infinite number of universes, certainly one of them has life on one planet. That's their reasoning. Certainly one of them has the design by chance that our universe has. Can I just suggest to you that the multiverse is science fiction, not science. There is nothing in science that can demonstrate this. But what else are they going to do with the teleological argument? If there's a design, there must be a designer. Thirdly, it's what's called the moral argument. And it says if there is a moral law, there is a moral law giver. If there's a moral law, there's a moral law giver. How do we know that there's a moral law? Well, listen to this, 99%, and it's more than that, but 99% of every culture believes that murder is wrong. 99% of every culture believes that stealing is wrong. 99% believe that adultery is wrong. I could go on and on. Why is this? The atheist suggests that there's something within our genes that tells us this, but that there's no science that can show this. Even if we were to accept evolution, and I don't, how do you get a moral gene? There's no such thing. Because genes cannot think and they don't have a will. But we do. That's what makes us moral, or, okay, immoral beings. 
choices, a will. Genes don't have those. Genes don't think, well, golly, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't kill this person. Genes don't think like that. And so the challenge is, even just from science, trying to prove that there is such a thing as a moral gene, but there's not. And if we try to say that all morals are relative, then ask your friend, I hear what you're saying, but can I ask you, was the Holocaust right or wrong? Because I want to tell you right now, in Germany, they truly believed it was right. So are you going to impose your moral will on Germany in the 1930s and 40s and say killing six million Jews was wrong? Because they believed it was right. And if morals are simply relative, who are we to tell anyone what's right or wrong? And yet, in our hearts, we know it was wrong. Why do you know this? And don't say the moral genes. See, morals cannot be relative like this. There is something imprinted on our heart in every culture, in every human being that says murder is wrong. And the only way to come to the conclusion that murder is okay is that something in their heart, their conscience, had to be suppressed, had to be crushed. So this is what happened in Germany. Over and over, sweeping the truth away and hiding it and establishing a lie. You tell a lie long enough and people, their consciences are seared and they believe the lie. So here's, here's, here's the conclusion I'm going to come to before we get into the rest of the scriptures. Those are the three arguments right there. There must be a God. I truly believe that. And it says here that even though they knew God, they knew that when they looked at creation, they could tell there is a God. And now I want to ask you then, what is that God like? We, I believe these are fair conclusions. This God, or whatever you want to call it, and I'm going to suggest it can't be in it because it had to have a will, and therefore it was personal. But number one, it was supremely powerful. The atomic energy... The sum total of all atomic energy in this universe is off the charts incredibly powerful. All of the atomic energy. The creator of all of this had to be more powerful than that. So I'm going to suggest this isn't just supremely. He's, we would have to say he's infinitely powerful to have created this powerful, powerful universe. That he had to be supremely intelligent. I mean... It, we are scratching the surface in astronomy, understanding our universe. It is so incredibly complex. And yet we look at a cell, and we are still trying to understand its DNA, the smallest part of that, that living cell. We're still trying to understand it. Amazing. We are still, it is so complex. And, and some people would say that the cell, that that's just a simple cell. And this simple cell gave rise to a complex human being. Well, wait a second. No, that cell was not simple. It was absolutely complex. And no scientist yet truly understands it. We have a better understanding, and it's baffling us even more and more. This God must be supremely intelligent. He's personal. He has a will and a purpose. Why would he create this universe? Why would he create you? And you were not an accident. God must have a purpose for you. God is personal. He had a will, and he's establishing that will. So let's get this straight. Are you personal? Do you like relationships with people? At least not when you're not angry with them, okay? Don't you like talking? Don't you like relating with people? So if God is relational, and I am relational, then don't you think he would have created you to have a relationship with him. But here's our problem. God is personal. He has a purpose for us, and that includes a relationship with him. But there's a problem, and we can all see it. The atheist can see it. The skeptic can see it. As you look around this world, do you not see a brokenness in this world? When I look inside my heart, and I'm not going to show it to you because it could be embarrassing, because there's some thoughts 
that I have that I'm thinking, God, where did that come from? Why did it? Man, I should not have been angry with that like that. And we all have these thoughts and we all have these actions and they hurt people. And some people have hurt you. And I'm going to call this sin. Regardless of what the atheist wants to call it, I'm going to call it sin, whatever they want to call it, but it hurts people. You do things that hurt people. I look around this world and I see storms that kill people. I see diseases that kill people. And I don't believe that murder is right. Death is not a good thing, but this is a God who is good. He's loving. He's personal. Look around at it. His creation is beautiful, but something's wrong with this creation. Whose fault is it? Is it God's fault or is it my fault? Because we're the only two that have will. We're the only two that could have broken this universe. Who broke the universe? I'm going to suggest to you God didn't. So here's what happens. I do things that not just hurt people, but what I do must hurt God. And he wants a relationship with me. What do I do with this, I'm going to call it sin, whatever they want to call it. What am I going to do with that? I want to have a relationship with this God, but I am sure he is offended, just like I am when I'm sinned against. What do we do? Let's look at this text. Look at verse 18. Here's what God says. His wrath is being revealed. Now, that doesn't just mean God's going around and he's killing people. It doesn't just simply mean, oh, you did wrong, so bam, judgment. Paul tells us what he means by this. God's wrath is presently, right now, in this generation and for all time since sin has been around, God has been revealing his wrath upon people who sin. How has he done this? Let's look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Of the, excuse me, yes, in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Obviously, sex that's not in the context of marriage. He's talking about premarital sex here. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. How did they do that? They swept the truth under the carpet to make room for the lie, right? And they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over. Now, this is the second time that we've come across this phrase. God gave them over. So underline that in verse 24. God gave them over. Here's another one in verse 26. God gave them over. He gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. This is what's called homosexuality. The act of having sex with the same sex person. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Verse 28, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. See, they had this knowledge. They could see they looked out through creation and they had this knowledge, something about God. That he's loving, what's a relationship, there's something broken in me and in the universe. What do I do about this? See, we, we can come to that conclusion very fairly. They had this knowledge of God, but what did they do? It says that they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. What did he do? He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Before I go any further, here's how some people view this. That when we sin, God says to the unbeliever, okay, I'm just going to give you over to your sin. And that this next paragraph, if you go even further and still don't repent, I'm going to give you over even further to sin. The second paragraph talks about homosexuality. The first paragraph talks about sex before marriage. And here's the mistake they made. Homosexuality must be far worse than sex before marriage. 
Do you see the logic? Well, in the first one, God gave them over to that, but since they didn't repent, he then gave them over to something even worse, homosexuality. If we're going to hold to this logic, let me read the next verse, because the third time he says God gave them over, shouldn't whatever I'm about to read be even worse than homosexual acts? Well, let me read it for you. Are you listening? They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, Strife, deceit, and malice, they are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Hello, how many of you have ever disobeyed your parents? Raise your hand. You've ever disobeyed your parents. You don't raise your hand. You're a liar. (laughs) I'm just going to call you out right now. We've all done it. And if I'm not going to call you out, if your mom or dad is here, they're going to call you out when you're done. All right? We've all done it. It, But this is in the category that's worse than homosexuality? See, that's not his point here at all. And, And I say this because the church, without realizing it, says, well, homosexual acts is so bad, I'm just having sex before marriage. Really? As if that's okay? See, Paul is not showing us a gradation, sex before marriage, and then homosexuality, and then what? Disobeying your parents? Gossiping? Guys, we all have done this. Here's the bottom line. Sin consumes us. We think, oh, it's just one time. I don't care what sin it is. Paul's point is not levels of sin. He's saying any sin, you give yourself to any sin, it will devour you, it will own you, and it will want to control you. Sin is not just an act. It is something in us that longs, that craves. Paul talks about it in Romans like it's a power. It's not just an act, it's a power, and it does something to us. It's like an infection that rages within our spirit. And there must be a cure, and you can't cure yourself. If I step into sin, it begins to entangle about me. It begins to pull me down below the waters, and it will drown me. We cannot say, oh, it's just one time, right? It's like the Lay's commercial, right? You you can't eat just one. It's just like that. Hey, you're going to come back to that sin again and again and again. And before you know it, it's a habit in your life. It's a stranglehold and it's killing you. And scripture says, that's right, it's killing you. In fact, you're already dead. Apart from Christ, you're already dead. The answer Paul gives throughout the book of Romans is this. Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, if we're looking around creation and we discover there's a brokenness in me that is hurting God, that's offending Him, and I read in Scripture that He's actually revealing His wrath by saying, you want to sin? I'm just going to give you over to your sin and it will consume you. That's the wrath of God that's being revealed. That's His point here from verses 18 to 32. And God is saying, fine, you do what you want to do, But you will realize that sin is always, never an exception, it is always destructive. It will never help you. And when we come to this realization and we realize, I am a sinner, what do I do? God created me to have a relationship with him, but I can't. I keep offending him. And all other religions will say, you know what, here's the answer. Man just fixes himself. You just try harder. Well, that doesn't get rid of your sin. It doesn't get rid of the offense. What can? Paul comes to this conclusion when he's talking about his unregenerated self. He said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Do you remember his answer? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the only answer. He's the only one that can rescue us from our lostness and separation from everything that is in God, including life. We are dead. We're separated from Him. We're lost in our sin that is consuming and controlling us. What do we do? There's only one answer. And that is stepping out and saying, God, I can't fix me. 
and I surrender. God, only you can do this. Only you can. Would you do that? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Can you stand with me? I hope you took good notes today. And if not, that you have a good memory. But can you share some of these things? And, and, and not just share them. I want you to think about these things. Maybe today you realize you need Jesus Christ. I want to offer him to you through these pages. Trust in Jesus Christ. He'll forever change you and he'll rescue you and forgive you. He'll make you new. But today, when I'm talking about God gave them over, have, have you stepped into sin? Has it entangled you? Has, is it imprisoning you today? Only Jesus can set you free. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you want this freedom, by faith you cry out to him, rescue me, God. And that's what we're going to do right now. Unbeliever or believer, everyone has a prayer right now. Father, I just ask you that as we come boldly before your throne of grace, your word says you have mercy. I just ask you, Lord, would you change this heart of mine? Father, I'm going to thank you that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have washed away my sin. You have separated as far as the east is from the west. And I actually stand in your presence in the righteousness of Christ. And I don't understand this, but I say thank you for that forgiveness. Thank you that you went to such great lengths in loving this world that you sent Jesus. That if I believe in you, I'll have eternal life. And I thank you for that. But Father, if there are things in our lives right now that are strangling us, I just humble myself before you. God, please come and rescue and do what only you can do. And by your power, let me walk in that freedom that you offer. Thank you, Lord God. And we pray this all in Jesus' name.